You're listening to the Go Global, Go Big podcast, powered by Globig. Hello, I'm your host, Anka Corbin, the founder and CEO of Globig. Today's hot topic is how do you do business in the United Kingdom? Our guest today is Andrew Uri. He's a partner at Uri Clark Chartered Accountants and Solicitors. They are one of UK's leading tax advisory, financial services, and law firms. So welcome, Andrew, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Amkin. So let's start this podcast with you sharing a little bit about Uri Clark and, and, you know, even share a little bit about yourself, and then we'll talk about this kind of migration of companies that go from where they start to into the UK, which is usually the first place that companies expand to abroad. Yeah, sure. So Uri Clark was set up by uh, my grandfather originally, uh, and then my father built the business. Um, myself, Personally, I wanted to be an inventor when I was young after watching um, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, of all things, uh, Krakatoa's Pots, but ended up doing engineering. Then I ended up running a record label, uh, which was great. And then somewhere during that, um, my old man persuaded me to join the family business. So then I trained as an accountant. Uh, I then uh, got wrapped up setting up some skincare businesses, which I'm still not quite sure how it happened, but it, it did. Um, and then I sort of uh, qualified in tax and started to sort of focus more on uh, advisory, on assisting people. The business as a whole, um, my old man's quite good at, at seeing trends. And he noticed in the late 90s that things were going global. And he just changed his perspective about what was important for us as a business. At the same time, we um, we opened a law firm. So we sort of, you know, about 20, 25 years ago, started having a law practice and an accounting practice, which is unusual to the stage that it's, it's sort of pretty much unique when we did it. And uh, it's still very unusual today. But he he's a huge believer in multidiscipline. Uh, being able to solve, you know, if you want to solve complicated problems, as, as MIT, I'm sure, would contest to, you've got to get everyone around the table to solve these problems. But uh, And also in cross-border, that he just sort of really started to get his head around the fact that things were going global and things were changing. So he was good on that. So we started uh, traveling um, and really just, you know, you, you, the only way you can do it is by starting to traveling and speaking to businesses. So we've been doing that for a long time now. Um, and as a result, sort of became more our sort of market leader, as it were, in our experience and our in our reach. We, we only do, uh, we don't do the entire world because that would be slightly unrealistic because we're only about 130 people. But yeah, we do sort of specific territories. And those territories really are focused around uh, countries that when they expand out of their home market, the UK and Europe certainly is a places that they look to next. So, you know, American businesses, Australian businesses, Indian businesses, you know, these, these, these countries, along with a bunch of others I could name, you know, but it's sort of simple examples when they, when they succeed in their own market, the UK has huge historical links to them. Um, shares a language, certainly a business language, and you know becomes the next place. Certainly, very high on the list that they they go and consider setting up. Uh, yeah, and that's what we do. Excellent. So, probably I would imagine the first thing that you would want to kind of give us some advice on is is how can we get there? So, what are the visa requirements? What do companies need to think about when they're first, you know? ready to explore the uk yeah so the, the the key issue here is that there is a visa called a sole representative visa which is a one-time only one use only for a company visa but it's a very easy visa to get and it allows someone who is who isn't a majority shareholder to be sent to the UK and and look at setting up operations and setting up operations, as in you know enables that you can roll it on and things. So you get an initial visa for three years and then you can extend it for two years. This visa is really easy to get, but as I said, it's only for one person. The problem with that visa is if you set up operations, if you form a company and open a bank account and start trading or anything, you're not allowed to get this visa. So the first mistake that people often make is they've already started to 
to move too much in that direction and they've lost their opportunity to get this really simple visa where you can identify someone in your workforce and say, right, you know, Tom or Jane, that's the right person. You know, we can get them a nice easy visa. If you miss that opportunity and you want to send people to work in the UK, you're then looking at um, either a sort of entrepreneur's visa, it's called, which is sort of when you show you've got enough money, £200,000 to invest in this business, which is generally quite workable, but more more difficult to arrange. Uh, and then beyond that, you're looking at uh, ancestry rights, so some sort of uh, you know a, a grandparent or something like that, which gives you some rights uh, that you may be able to get a visa to come to the UK. Or beyond that, it's the intercompany transfer visas, which again is all doable. But for all of those other visas, you know, intercompany transfers, you've got to set up a company. You need a UK resident who's going to be responsible for the people coming into the country. It's not really what you want. Initially, the Solrep visa is is designed to do exactly what you want it to do, um, and it's just important that you haven't begun to trade yet in the UK. And, and when you mean trade, that even means having someone over there kind of scoping it out and starting to meet with companies, or is it truly where you actually have a transaction? Well, well you're, you're hitting the sort of line. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you can come in as a business visitor, you know, up to six months, and you can uh, look at things. If you start coming in and out of the country, though, they're going to start asking questions, and you quite quickly technically become employed there because if you – if you form a UK company and you're a director, you're now an employee of a UK company and you need a visa. So the, basically, there's a very fine line. Now, it's, it, 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 it is a, it's a gray area. So you could come in on a tourist visa, as lots of people do, on a sort of, um, sorry, on a business visitor visa. You need to make sure you tick the right box on that because if you say you're a tourist and you're here for business, they, they can deny you further visas. But it's it's effectively not uh, not taking the Mickey, as we would say, that you can come in as that sort of temporary thing to have a look around, and that's all very normal. But once you're like, okay, we want to set up a re- operation, you'll need someone who can come here for more than six months and has the right to actually do stuff here, to be working here. Um, you know, really, this the restriction on a business visitor visa is that you're here having sort of meetings. Maybe you've gone to a, a trade show. Um, you can't do any work. You so it's regardless of whether you're working for an American company or whatever company. If you are conducting duties in the UK, you need a visa. So as you can see, that the line becomes really fine. So they send someone over here just to have a look, but they're carrying on doing their job a little bit for the American company. Say. Well, technically, you need a visa, and they need to be taxed here and stuff. So, technicality is the word, but um, you know there is this visa available. You should make sure that you've thought about whether or not to take advantage of it uh, for that key person who's coming over. Um, you know, yeah. Interesting. So, what about for companies that have a short-term event? So, let's say they're putting on a conference. We've had actually several. Um, conference producers ask these sorts of questions um, when they do they bring their entire team for but it's really very very short and then they are not going to come back the year ne- the year after what what does that situation look like well I'm um, yes as a, I'm an accountant and tax advisor so I'm slightly relying off uh, what I know from working in this firm from the visa lawyers but you're just you're fine to come here and conduct initial meetings you you can't conduct uh, duties which is to do any actual work you know sign contracts uh, you know do whatever you would do in your normal uh, job obviously it's a uh, it's an area where you just say, well, I'm coming for an event. Uh, I brought my team to attend this event. We're just having introductory meetings. That would be fine, you know, under a business visitor visa, you then return. But if you then turn up another month later and you say you're doing the same and then you try and do it another month later, at that point, they're going to start stopping you at customs and saying, well, hang on, what are you doing here? You know, you keep coming. You know, you could come for 10 trade shows a year. 
that would be okay, provided you spent less than six months. But you're going to start opening yourself up to questions. So you better be quite clear on what you're doing. And they have quite a lot of information at their disposal in the UK. You know, a lot of information is public. You know, if you did form a company, that's public information. Like you could look it up here in two seconds and say, well, hang on, you formed a business here now. And you're a director of it and you say you're just coming on another. So once you cross the line, if you annoy them enough uh, and you you don't say the right things, you get a 10-year ban. So before before you've sort of got going, you're suddenly in a silly situation that you don't need to be in where you effectively can't now come and build your business here. Oh, gosh. Have you seen that? Yes, you do, actually. I mean, you see it most commonly. I hate to blame the poor Aussies, but, you you know, in our business, most commonly we get it with Australians um, coming in and out because I think we sort of forget that we're separate countries or something. But, yeah, we probably we get one every every six months or so. We probably get a client who's got themselves into trouble at the border. Initially, they they, they will quite often send you back one, one more time. They'll send you home saying you need to get a visa and you need to sort yourself out. But, you know, they're getting so good, as we all know now, on the sort of the digital information they hold. Um, you know, it is it, it, it is a reality and they'll, they'll have a record of that. So effectively, there's this visa, you know, try and you, if you're serious about coming to set up here, fine, come and have a trip and do a little bit of market research. That is fine. That's perfectly acceptable under a business visitor. But if you're then right, I want to go back and make this happen. At that point, you want to be getting the visa. Okay, so at what point then do you, is the next step then to figure out if you're going to create an entity or not? Yeah, so um, the, the this is all effectively around a concept which is, is a common concept internationally. In America, you call it nexus, but most places call it permanent establishment. Um, you need an entity. Uh, uh, you, you absolutely need an entity at the point at which you create a permanent establishment, which is a, a, a place of business, which is a, an effective management team, an office, an address, something you could point at really, um, whether it's whether it be a couple of management team or, or it'll, it'll be a, an address. At that point, you need an entity because regardless of whether you have an entity or not, you've created a taxable presence. So the concept of permanent establishment exactly like, well, similar to Nexus in America is that the point at which your activities constitute something that is taxable regardless of what entity or anything it is. Um, forming companies is super easy in the UK. No one needs to be British. No one needs to live here. Um, all the shareholders can be foreign. You can form them in four hours. Um, you know, it couldn't be easier to form a limited company, which is sort of equivalent of a, an ink, roughly. There are other other entities you could consider, but in you know, ninety nine percent of cases, a limited company in the UK is the the option. The only thing you need is a UK registered office, which is a, an official address for paperwork. Um, normally, that's with the lawyer, or accountant. I mean, we certainly provide it for free to our clients because it's just. Uh, it's quite important we see the official post uh, and then it's not getting lost at someone's address. So, um, you know, forming a company is so easy and it also enables you to sort of, now I've got a UK address, now I've got an entity, I can now sort of start appearing more serious in the market. The other thing is, is that it takes a long time to open a bank account. With foreign ownership, if your company has foreign ownership, opening a UK bank account takes time. We are one of the money laundering capitals of the world in terms of the fact that if you can get a London bank account or a UK bank account open, it provides legitimacy to any uh, such activities. So the reason you want to get on and get a limited company formed normally is you want to get the process started of getting a bank account open. The problem is not forming a company. Indeed, you don't need the company practically to the day that you need it because you can form them so quickly. The issue is, is you need to start getting the bank to think about um, you know, getting your bank account open. I, I, I would be realistic to say that opening a bank account would take you uh, at least two months. You know, it, it could take you three. It could take you six. And I, I've seen it take longer than that. The, the issue with opening a bank account is people expect customer service, whereas you're 
when you're coming to set up in the UK, you're a very small startup, you have very little value to the bank, and you're very high risk with foreign ownership. So you're a bit of a pain to them with great respect. Uh, so you, you rather than expecting them to be very keen to sort of take on your business and run around for you, you have to sort of take it on more as a job that, you know, you, with someone like our help, you would get a commercial manager to at least, um, you know, be, be happy to deal with you. And then you've got to push the process through. You've got to say, well, what else do you need? What else do you need? You know, how can I help? Have we got it open yet? Have we got it open yet? And then finally, you'll get the bank account open. And it's it's something that perhaps needs to change here, but it's really a reflection of the you know they've got the sort of we've got the strictest fca compliance and money laundering compliance in the world we have the strongest bribery act in the world you know your 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 requirements in that regard put huge pressure on the banks um to ensure they understand your business backwards they understand every individual who's a major shareholder and a director in your business and they do full checks on those individuals so the, the to be sympathetic to the banks, they have quite a difficult job to do. Um, and, you know, the upside of that is that once you've got a UK bank account open, you know, it's uh, it's a good commodity to have in terms of uh, functionality because the UK banking sector is, uh, you know, similar to New York, is, is, is incredibly integrated. Uh, or um, what would be the right word, you know? Uh, yes, uh, has, has some depth to it, I would say. So this may not be something that you know, but what, how, what do people do in the interim? So maybe the banks are still working on the process. So you've got your first person over there. The bank account hasn't been um, completely opened yet, but yet they need to have the ability to pay. They need to have the ability to rent uh, someplace to live. And oftentimes the company needs to cover that. Have you... Have yeah, so, so I mean, yeah, it's always a problem. So, I mean, we as a result have ended up offering client accounts, which we can open in a day, which sits under our banking once we have identified you. I mean, you'll run into this sort of identification procedures that the bank do. Uh, also required by professionals and various other people, which which means getting hold of original, seeing original passports and bills at their home address to verify their identity and where they live. So we, you know, we could open a client account for you because once we've done that process ourselves and our requirements are slightly less draconian than the banks uh, in terms of the amount of paperwork the banks choose to hold, that would enable you to have a bank account which we could receive funds from the parent company or from very legitimate sources like the tax authority here uh, and those funds, you know, then you can you can pay individuals or you can uh, pay for stuff. Otherwise, really, you've got to use your um, your remote bank. You've got to use the bank at home and, and pay transfers. Um, it is this is opening a bank account. It's like it's just a key issue. You know, it, it, it's not going to go away. You can you can set up a company. You can register it for tax and VAT or GST, as you would call it. You can do all of those things pretty fast within a week or so. Um, the bank account is the one thing that you, you, you've got to go and battle to get organized um, in order that you can trade effectively. Uh, and in the interim, you, you're just going to have to rely off, well, if you're trying to pay someone, you know, we run a payroll bureau service like many companies, so we, we can receive funds from America and pay tax liabilities and pay the individuals. So paying people is not so much the problem. Paying suppliers is is a bit more of a pain um, because within Europe there's uh, very you know the charges for transfers are you know very low if any uh, and in the UK it's free to transfer money between accounts and it's instantaneous so um, yeah there is there is a a cost there for the businesses it's starting to get start, trying to start get trading. Mm. All right, so now we've got the visa, then we've got the bank account coming together, and now we need to think about, you know, creating the entities and are there any, so you said that was actually much quicker, especially for some of the simpler uh, entities. So then the next step would be either bringing someone over from the home country or hiring in the UK. Um, tell us a little bit about that process and 
which makes the most sense because I think I'd love to have a chat about culture after that a little as well. Yeah, so um, the, the first thing to say is never never send over salespeople. Always hire salespeople locally, from my experience. I've seen people send all kinds of salespeople to the UK. It just it just doesn't work uh, in terms of understanding how to do it, how 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 to interact and, and get a sale in the UK. You know, we, we, we think differently like every other country does, and it's most apparent when you're trying to do sales. Sending someone over, though, to build your management team and your culture as a business that's usually not a bad idea. And there's also, there's a bunch of tax reliefs around the concept of someone coming for a period of less than two years. So if someone is sent to the UK on a temporary basis, temporary being less than two years, they, the, the law, and this is fairly international, but they, they take the view that, well, they've got a home you know, back in their home country. They've got a life back in their own country. They've been sent to work in the UK. That's a lot of additional expense and effort for them. So there's a quite favorable setup in the sense that all their sort of living allowances are deductible in the country, in the, in the company. They uh, themselves pay a lower tax rate for the first year they're here if they've got coverage from their home country in terms of social security or in terms of sort of healthcare. Um, so there's, there's various uh, abilities for them to have a sort of, you know, quite beneficial life when they come over here. Oh, beneficial tax rate when they sort of come over here for that short period. If it's more than two years, then at the point that at the point that you, they become aware that it's more than two years, that's when the tax relief ends effectively. So, um, if you're sending someone to the UK, it's best to take the view that you're sending them for up to two years, which is is normally the commercial reality anyway. Uh, hiring people obviously is you know, relatively uh, easy, depending if you can find them, uh, obviously here. Yeah, as I say, normally when you're expanding, you're trying to build a sales and marketing team. Well, that would be most common in technology businesses, but, you know, in other businesses as well. Um, obviously in retail or something like that, it's quite a different thing. But you would, you know, not bad as a, a vanilla setup to send over someone to sort of bring the culture of the company and do the initial hiring and, you know, pick the people and all of that. Hire your salespeople locally, wrap a limited company around them. You know, that individual who comes over to set the culture will use the sole rep visa. And there we go. You should be, you know, if you get your bank account open, you should be in pretty good shape. Ready to rock and roll. And so what are some of the, you had mentioned that it's really important to hire salespeople locally. Why is that? What do you see as being some of the biggest challenges that people have if they think that they're going to just jump right in and be an effective salesperson? Um, I guess uh, in the, the odd thing about Britain is, is we think we're quite efficient and uh, we think we're quite sort of, uh, you know, uh, we make decisions quite well and quite quickly. Um, but that's probably because we spend, uh, we compare ourselves to Europe a lot. I and mean, in France and Germany, these things can get really slow and difficult. But, you know, un, uh, we still do have a sense of, uh, it, we take a little bit of time to make decisions and we don't like to be pushed into corners. We also, you know, it's a sort of sales culture. It's like, you know, an American culture, you guys would never drink at lunch, you know, drinking at lunch, alcohol is a huge part of our culture and a huge part of getting to know someone. That doesn't mean that you turn up to a sales meeting and get yourself hammered at lunchtime. But if you're going to make an important sale, it's going to take you time you're going to have to get to know someone a bit uh, and you're going to have to be very gentle and very polite how you deal with them. We're a little bit like the Japanese. So, you know, basically American sales approaches don't work. If you, you know, using America's perhaps an unfair example, but if you look at your TV advertising in America, it, it doesn't work here. It's, it's incredibly sort of, to us, sort of straightforward and rather in your face. And, you know, it's quite a subtle sell here. It needs to be very gentle. It's also a lot here, you know, people give people more of a chance in America, you kind of have this attitude of like, well, I'll give it a go, or you know, these sort of this, um, you know, the almost uh, my sense to is almost the American dream thing. Here, it's slightly who you know, so you've got to you've got to get to know people, and then you've got to be very gentle how you ask them. And like the Japanese, you've always got to give them the third door, like the exit out. You should never say to a British person, "Would well, do you want it or not?" You know, that doesn't or yes or no is is not really so much in our 
vocabulary. You know, we, we, we need to be a bit more like, you know, I'm interested whether you're going to go forward or maybe you've got, you're busy with other things at the moment or, you know, you need some more time to get back to me. You, you, you know, you need to give me a way out of that conversation. And it, it's strange because we don't really have loss of face necessarily. When you, once you're, once you're, so, you know, that the initial sales thing, you've got to be very gentle with someone and gently, if you can get in front of them, I mean, we love to say no by email, but if you can actually get in front of someone three times, I always think that third time you're going to get the job because we almost get to a point that we, we can't, you know, if we've managed, if we're having a meeting with you for a third time, we just sort of decide, well, we, we must have to do this now because, you know, we've, we've let you in the door three times, so we must be off. <laughs> Uh, so we tend to sort of at that point say yes. Then, then at that point, you need to keep yourself rather super polite and um, you know super professional. Then, if business is going okay or whatever, or you sort of got to know the person a bit, then the next bit is really say, well, you know, why don't we have a spot of lunch or you know let's, let's um, meet up, you know, maybe have a drink. And that's where things change. If you if you can then if you can then uh, meet someone and have lunch with them, uh, maybe, you know, you have a few drinks and share a few personal stories, then the, the atmosphere completely changes and you start being able to talk to each other very frankly, very honestly, and all the sort of facade fades away very quickly. And that's, that's going to be fundamental to you, you know, having a long-term relationship with someone. And now that person, you know, you probably call them mate and, you know, you're, you talk very plainly with them, any problems, anything you're going. I think that's, you know, a strength in our culture. There's, there's an absolute honesty almost once you get to that point. So all of that process I just described, it's, it's quite hard for someone to do that unless they've lived in this country for a while. I mean, the other key thing, because it's who you know, the biggest wall that people hit is they come in, and I see this as Americans, I see this with Australians, you know, they come in, you know, and they throw all their energy at sort of, right, I'm going to get some sales happening. But they don't really know anyone. You know, they haven't built up a network of friends and colleagues and, you know, people that they've been in. So it's not so much someone needs to be British, but someone needs to have lived and worked here for a good 10 years, I would say, if you want to hire them as a salesperson. Because a lot of those initial sales, you know, it depends what you're selling, but most things you're going to have to rely on, you know, I'm sure this is true in most countries, but you're going to have to rely on a friend, someone you know giving you a chance really and saying, all right, you know, I'll give you a shot, mate, blah, blah, blah. And um, so if, if someone hasn't got any uh, history of being here, then, then um, uh, sorry. so if someone, if someone hasn't got any history of being here, um, then effectively um, they're not going to have the right contacts to even get that first stage going because you need those initial first customers. Um, then combined with the just how to approach people, how to handle people, it's very easy to upset British people if you're not super polite with them all the time. You know, it's pretty important to us. Absolutely. So culture really is probably one of the bigger challenges. It's not... It's, it's fairly consistent to go through the business setup and the visa setup and the banking setup. And then really the breakdown often happens in the not understanding the culture and really understanding how long it'll take to build those relationships. Is that? For sales, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a lot about that. I mean, how do you do an advertising campaign or a social media campaign? And I think, I think that's what's tough about Europe. I think it, it, they are so different, all these countries. I mean, France are the opposite of the British people, or almost like two brothers who grew up and ended up opposites. You know, that is us. You know, Britain has a lot more in common, actually, with the Germans or the Poles, because they have this sort of very, you know, work ethic, you know, sort of culture. But, you know, that I think the struggle for anyone who ever takes on Europe is, is that you cannot treat it like 52 states. You can't treat it... As a you know, while with the European Union, you know, I know Brexit's hanging out there, but while we've all got sort of long historical relationships, they couldn't be more different countries to try and do business in, um, which is you know a real problem. I mean, and you know, when you make the point about culture, I always laugh about the word um, interesting because we, the British use the word interesting all the time and it basically means I'm not interested is what it means but I, I regularly deal with people who tell me they've gone to a load of sales meetings and 
they're going to do it all in six months. And then I say, well, you know, what happened in the meetings and stuff? And they said, oh, everyone said they're really interested, right? which is like a massive red flag to me. I'm like, oh, man, that, no, that that just means that's just a polite way of saying, OK. I mean, I, I, I use the analogy that, you know, um, effectively, you know, someone like India has it, 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 they they always say yes now the british don't say yes in fact the british hate saying well hate saying yes is wrong if we say yes we mean it it's like a really intrinsically in our culture it's the, the concept of our word is our bond i mean you know some people argue these things have disappeared but in my experience they haven't disappeared at all if i say to you yes i'm going to do something then i am absolutely bound to that or that's my credibility gone you know i must do it so as a result we we don't, saying yes is quite a big deal to us. So we have lots of ways of saying no. Interesting is one of them. You know, thanks for coming today. I think what you've told me is really interesting. You know, do stay in touch. You know, that's basically no, you know, and you've got to go through that. So, you know, understanding those sort of turns in language uh, are so important. I mean, I think probably Americans, by example, are probably quite well equipped to, uh, you know, understand some of that. Um, but again, if you haven't got someone local here who can pick up what's going on in a meeting when you think something else is going on, then that, it, it's crucial. I mean, the good news is, is if someone says yes to you, they mean yes. And actually, contracts aren't anywhere near as important as this country as they seem to be in America. I mean, a contract here is something you keep in a drawer and you only get out when it goes wrong. You know, it's all about the personal relationship, the handshake, you know, that you do business with each other on the basis that, you know, there's a mutual interest and, and you work to it. Contracts are, are not followed strongly. You know, our sort of reliance and our, 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 our the way we, you know, operate is, is often without a contract or the contract slightly meaningless. So in, in, in many ways, if you start putting a contract that's too draconian on the table, you'll screw yourself up anyway, really. The, the, the question is, is, is the person who's making the decision of, is the, is the business, they said yes to you. That person said, yeah, I want to do it. If they have, that's good. That's, you know, you should, you should gain great comfort from that, that you're going to do business together. And you've just got to build that relationship and keep that relationship in a level of trust. If at any point they work out that you're not telling them the truth or you're, um, you know, being a little, uh, little bit suspect about that, that will be very bad for the relationship. You know, we do not like uh, that sort of, I'm, I'm, and I'm sure that all these things are common in their ways, in different ways. But I noted, I find in American business culture, I struggle to get the truth out of people. You know, can you really supply this? You know, yes, yes, yeah. You know, no, but can, you know, what is the reality of this situation? Um, and, you know, I find that sort of quite hard to get get through. I mean, the, the good bit is, is once you, get through the you know it takes a long time but once you've once you've sort of got that relationship you've got the person to the third meeting at the table they said they're going to give you a chance and you start working together you know that relationship can be very very strong and you can handle difficult circumstances where you pick up the phone to each other and say look mate there's a problem and this is the problem what are we going to do about it and there's a lot of understanding about that which is is, is the good the, the upside as it were very interesting. What about, um, yeah, I, I find culture probably is one of the most fascinating parts of this. And I think probably the most under uh, recognized and underappreciated too. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about the taxes and how that works and how they're different and, and just how to understand it better. So now that someone's doing business, whether it's a service business or a physical products business, how does it work from a tax perspective? Tax is uh, thankfully very easy, and the number's almost always twenty percent. It feels like, um, but the a company pays two taxes. It pays corporation tax at twenty percent, which is going down slowly over the next few years to sixteen percent or perhaps lower pays it on its profit and it pays a tax on employment. Um, it pays, every time you employ someone in the UK, you have to pay social security on top, which is 13.8% on top of gross salaries. Uh, now, remembering in the UK that uh, we have the National Health Service, so there's no healthcare requirements here or anything. So, you know, uh, you just pay a 13.8% tax, which is, is effectively just, 
uh, attacks on the company on employment, which goes towards the uh, cost of pensions and healthcare in the country. So that's all the company pays. An individual pays income tax. Um, not mo- very few individuals, or you know, five percent, will do a tax return in the UK. Most of us don't do tax returns. Everything is taxed at source uh, through their employer. Um, so the employer must run a payroll, which calculates their tax, which deducts their tax, which pays their tax. Um, so I have to say, taxes, you know, it's very transparent here. It's very the uh, I hate to admit that the uh, HMRC's website now gov.uk has you know excellent information on it. It's slightly twisted in their favour at times, but you know it's very clear. You know, there's a clear explanation of most of the things. I mean. The one thing about tax is that actually, you know, the UK, certainly by American tax advisors, regarded as a tax haven. It's certainly true if you're going to build an international uh, business that having your holding company in the the US, although maybe that's where all your investment comes from, is a pretty bad idea in terms of structuring something internationally. You know, really, when you look at the world and you think, well, I, I want to build an international business, I don't want to be in any tax havens. I don't want to be in any dodgy places because the moralistic swing is so strong now. You know, whether you take the Apple example recently or the, the general, general, generally the mood that is going on and the change of attitude is that you need to be transparent, you need to be very legitimate, and you need to be very fair and rerouting uh, money to small offshore places is no longer okay or anything you know decent companies want to be a part of when you look at the world in that sense you're really down to only a few places to structure stuff and that's the uk ireland singapore hong kong so there's two elements the first element is okay what what, what tax do i need to pay in the uk well if if you've got a limited company which is likely is 20 percent on profits or lower um, and you've got to pay a tax when you employ people, but that's it. That's that's it. I mean, the only other thing to consider is VAT, which you need to register for VAT. But a VAT, you are as a company, you do not pay VAT. You only collect uh, VAT on behalf of the government, which is probably too confusing to try and explain here. But it isn't a tax on the company itself, uh, unless you're in financial services, it could be considered. But Let's not get lost on that. The flip side of that coin is, well, what about tax? I'm expanding internationally. Certainly if you're an American business, you should seriously consider about setting up a holding company in the UK or possibly another territory that you're going to trade out of significantly because money can flow through that company without being taxed. You can sell any subsidiaries and there's no tax on them. Um, there's the you know the UK for example has got the largest tax treaty network in the world, which means wherever there are taxes, there's a system in which you can offset them and consider them. Um, I know from experience that actually, you know, investing into the UK as an American is not a bad thing to do, and with your extremely high corporate tax rates in America. You know, the examples of Amazon and Google and everyone who've got into so much trouble in Europe because all Europe got very upset that they felt they were avoiding European taxes. I mean, ironically, they would have been very happy to pay 20%. What they were trying to get out of is paying huge American taxes on their European activities. So, you know, I think there's a lesson in there in two ways. One, don't do anything too clever, you know, if it's too good to be true or it's if you don't understand it, if you can't sit and understand your structure or the commercial sense of why you're structured like that, you definitely don't do it. There's, you know, very, very um, large companies, large advisors out there who are still getting into trouble giving out this advice. And I mean, we're quite against it. If we start trying to read some clever structuring and think well, it's just it doesn't really add up i don't really get it then uh, we always just say no stay out of it but the other side of that is don't do really stupid things do do sensible things you know use things like the uk as a place to draw your income in from uh, across the world and pay 20 percent on it provided you've got a legitimate team here you know, I mean, holding where you place holding companies and where you structure internationally is a lot about finance. So, you know, America, obviously, if you can't raise money in America, then you're mad. The next, the next person, they, well, not you're mad, but, 
you know, it, it, you're not going to find it easier anywhere else. Um, the next probably best place to raise finance is London. Um, you know, so I don't know, that might be confusing your question slightly, but it, it, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a double-sided thing because while you might set up a small operation in the UK and keep your taxes at a bare minimum, okay, that's fine, but you were never going to pay much tax here anyway on a small operation, even if it was, you know, you know, turning over a lot because it's just a, it's a small piece. It's a sales and marketing office or something for a bigger operation. Should you, when you first expand internationally, should you consider whether this is a moment where you should be considering what happens to your international expansion? Should you have a holding company uh, you know, in the UK, in Singapore, in somewhere that suits your business commercially, meaning somewhere you can travel to, somewhere effective management are able to, you know, come, where the CEO is happy to come, you know, and have meetings, uh, where you can build a team, where there's the skill base that you can run that sort of higher, higher level part of your business, you know, somewhere with, with you know, somewhere like San Francisco or London that can offer that sort of depth of employment and people. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think Brexit is going to be, I mean, it's kind of the B word, right? We haven't addressed it yet, but how is Brexit going to impact any of the things, whether it's this one or any of the other ones, that, the topics that we had t- discussed? Well, we, weirdly, and this is going to sound kind of wrong, but um, weirdly, um, the, it doesn't actually affect much in a really weird way. People... Um, I guess I guess what slightly happened is that Europe has been sort of uh, pushed forward as this sort of one market, but it isn't one market in terms of the way that you would think about things. I mean, maybe it's a little bit similar to America that there's so many sort of local registrations in different states and the sort of tax is endlessly complicated. But let, let's take this example. If I was a uh, British business, uh, UK limited company, and I wanted to trade across Europe, um, I would, if I wanted to go do business in Germany, as I was doing the other week for a client, yes, you can use a UK limited company to employ people in Germany, and you could use a UK limited company to trade in Germany. But you won't, because you'll be advised that employees don't like working for anything other than a German company. And there's various details about how you operate that mean that it, it's actually probably more annoying and, and uh, time-consuming than just setting up a German company. The second question is, is what tax would I be paying if I've got a UK limited company? Well, this concept of permanent establishment is true across all of Europe. If you've got people in Germany doing stuff, you need to pay German tax on those activities, regardless of whether or not those people are employed by a British company, a South African company, an Argentinian company. It doesn't matter. If we take if we take the example of a UK company trading in Germany and then we compare it, let's say, let's do South Africa. So we're now a South African company and we want to trade in Germany. Well, you can use a South African company to trade in Germany if you wanted. Um, you could use it to employ people if you wanted it. But it's not going to be ideal. And the local people are going to prefer to deal with a German company. And they're going to prefer to be employed by a German company. Uh, and the reality is that there's no difference so the only thing that brexit really affects is vat sales tax and sales tax on goods so europe is not harmonized for services i can't as an accountant go and practice in germany Um, it is not harmonized in terms of the provision of services what it is harmonized about is that you pick a port of entry italy britain wherever You can import goods into that country and then you can freely move goods around that. So the worst impact possibly for Brexit is that if you're trading in the UK with your goods, you will need to have a VAT registration, not even a company, some sort of VAT registration on the continent. But from experience, you know, I can think of a furniture manufacturer, I can think of Oh, in various businesses, the reality is if you're moving any decent amount of goods, you would have done that anyway, because shipping to the UK, then sticking it on a boat or on a train back into Europe, isn't that efficient. Continental Europe, moving goods around is most efficient by a truck. 
um, you know, shipping goods into the UK and then on shipping them into Europe is fine, but it's not fine once you start talking, you know, serious volumes. You know, you normally pick Holland or perhaps Portugal as your port to land goods. So, so no one really knows how this is all going to pan out. But the the reality at the moment is that um, Britain is part of the European Union. The European Union is a free movement of goods in reality. It has quite heavy, heavy duty tariffs for import of goods from other countries uh, outside of Europe. Obviously, Europe wants to look after Europe. So, you know, you can move everything around freely in Europe. But I was doing some silly examples the other day. If you wanted to sell butter into Europe or you wanted to sell desk lamps, because I haven't done a desk lamps on my table, you go and look up the duty rates uh, for importing either of those items into Europe. They're quite heavy. You pay 5% on a desk lab. You'll pay, I think it's in 100 euros per 10 kilos or 100 kilos of butter. So, you know, back in the day, we used to borrow our butter personally from New Zealand. Now we borrow all our butter from France. And actually, Brexit has some really interesting things about it in terms of it, it's very likely that our historical partners, so our, the Commonwealth, as it were, which is really, you know, Canada, Australia, South Africa, lots of Africa itself, uh, India, you know, and and in many ways, America, these countries that we have so much historical relationship with, you know, we share, um, with, you know, law, we share a lot with them. I mean, we're, you know, America's slightly an exception to this, but with the others, they all have British law, basically. So you've got sort of a great sort of basis of trade. Then meanwhile, um, it looks likely that we're going to, you know, renegotiate all these trade deals that have been basically negotiated by Europe, mostly by the French on our behalf, with with our partners. That That is a good thing in terms of you're now going to be able to bring goods into Britain that aren't from Europe at a much favorable rate. If we were very lucky and we negotiate well with Europe, then you could even move them onto Europe at a perhaps favorable rate rather than bringing them direct in. You know, shipping China to Europe isn't always a great plan when you look at the duty rates and things and the protectionism that's slightly there. So the reality is that even if Britain leaves the European Union, it has zero impact on, on how you would approach building a business in Europe, what companies you would need, what registrations you would need, or what tax you would pay. None of that changes, uh, and it never has really. It, it's slightly, um, it's slightly marketing in terms of saying, "Well, Europeans one market." You know, it's, it's quite a common problem trying to sort of educate an American that you know well, now they've succeeded in the UK that going to do it in Germany is a completely separate question. Uh, requires them to completely, you know, think again. You know, whether it's about culture or in terms of how they're going to tr- trade there. But yeah, as I say, the one aspect is goods. You know, the one in fairly, fairly likely thing to happen is that we will we will probably have some restriction on the movement of goods because they're looking for some restriction on the movement of people. You know, sadly, certainly if you're a Londoner who's very pro, very anti-Brexit, you know, it's a sort of sad mood, anti-immigration thing. You know, we don't need to get into the Trump debate, but that sentiment is common across the world at the moment. Uh, the upside, though, is is that when we, because of the European Union and the free movement of you know half a billion people, they scrapped all the visas that enabled us to bring in talent from other places in the world, unless it was a sole rep, unless it's an entrepreneur, or a basically I've got a lot of money, I'm going to go invest it in a company. You know, if you've got a million pounds, there's a visa for that, and you pretty much get in to walk in, and you know, welcome, welcome to Britain, but. You know, the the, uh, the routes that used to be there, which were called the higher skills visa, the, the ability for you to say, well, I'm a, I'm a very qualified person, you know, I'm super bright, super able, I want to go and live and work in London. That used to be possible and, ha- and it was scrapped in 2008 because we couldn't cope with the numbers coming in from Europe. Now, that's, some of that's going to come back. I mean, some of that relaxation, without a doubt, if you're going to be talented and you're from Canada or America or India, we, you know, it's extremely likely and all the rhetoric is there about we're going to open up that as a possibility. So Brexit's kind of fascinating. It's, it's sad because it's a sad, sad for what the vote represented it. You know, a real split in the country towards the attitudes towards immigration. You know, 
London is, you know, more than 50% of London is is people who were not born in Britain. You know, I I always, you know, I, thankfully you're familiar with it in America, but, you know, you deal with a lot of people from different countries who actually have no idea the level of multiculturalism that you're talking about. I mean, you know, places like LA and New York are at a similar level to London. But the mad thing about London is it's peaceful. There's, there's very little murder. Crime is very low. You've got all these different people living together in a melting pot. And there's kind of, there's no ghettoization, you know, everyone's mixed in and it works and it's fine and everyone's peaceful about it. And I don't think that's, I don't think that's going to change any point soon. You know, I think that's, I think that's what London is. And when you walk down the street, there aren't many black people from Europe. There's a lot of black people in London. So, you know, you see that history, you see the Caribbean and the African, you know, connections that this, you know, city has and uh, the country has. So, I don't know, you know, from a business perspective, I think, you know, Brexit just makes it all, everyone sit around on the decisions a bit more. But one of the most fundamental things we realized when we just been talking about it recently, it's I had a client who was looking at, he was saying, okay, well, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and stick some people in France. And the moment we started talking about it and actually had the choice of different countries, uh, most places in Europe, if you employ someone, they immediately have full employment rights, which means you cannot fire them unless it's for performance or redundancy. And I, I don't know, I've been practicing maybe 20 years, and um, it sounds very reasonable, this concept that if someone isn't performing their job properly, you can go through a, a consultation over three to six months and end their employment. I've never seen anyone get anyone out of a business through performance. They always have. They, if you've let, if 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 someone's worked for you long enough that they have full employment rights, and you decide that you don't want them in the business, we have nothing like America. You you have huge problems trying to get rid of them. You basically got to shut down departments and stuff. Now, in the UK, you get these rights after two years. In Europe, in most places, you get it immediately. In some places, I think it's. Uh, Ireland, you get six months, uh, and there's a year someone else. But basically, you hire someone. That's it. You you got them now. You know, you getting rid of them is 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 very very hard. So in Spain, you may have heard this unemployment rate that got knocked around like thirty percent unemployment. You, you, we deal a lot with Spanish business. The, it's not that there's thirty percent unemployment. It's because if I employ someone, I can't get rid of them. So there's an awful lot of you know, quasi-employment consultancy and everything. So, so I want to expand my business to Europe. Or I want to get over here. Well, the UK is the second largest market, so that's going to be important to start with. But fundamentally, if I'm going to build an employment team, do I really want to be hiring people in a country where I can't make a decision about whether or not they're any good at their job? The UK has double the, the period of any other. And, you know, we do two years. There's some country that does a year. Most places, zero. So the reality now is if you're trying to build a business, I, I would say, and I'm not even trying to be nationalistic, I just, uh, you know, I have businesses myself, I would say, okay, well, hire them in the UK. They could still come here from Europe and work here if you wanted to hire someone from Italy or whatever. You know, absolutely, you know, bring them in, build a team here. Worst case scenario, worst case scenario, they say, right, your employees are no longer allowed to work, which I find extremely unlikely because the level of outcry that would go on here it would just be absurd because effectively you would be massively damaging British business. You know, so, the, you know, I think that's extremely unlikely. But let's say they did. Then you would say, OK, well, I've got this team of three people I've trained up, you know, two are French, one's Italian. Fine. I'm now going to offer, open an office in Portugal or wherever I am. And off you go. You've all got European passports. You've been trained in the UK. Life is good. If, if, if I've decided that one of these people isn't up to mustard, I'm going to end their employment, you know, uh, and I can do that because it's under two years. And that's fine. I mean, the, the mad thing is, is the moment if you if you move those if people have worked for you for six months and you move them to Spain and then you said right, I'm going to end your employment, you wouldn't be able to. They would say, well, no, 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 you're under Spanish employment law now, so they have an absolute right to this job. You've got to go through all the procedures, you know. So I don't know if it's helping, but it's you know it's a, it's a complex thing to try and ex explain in one go, but. Oh, it does make sense. It is very difficult, but it I can see the benefits for definitely, you know, con considering the UK and, and that being really the 
one of the best places to start a company for sure. Now, Andrew, is there anything that I haven't asked you yet that you would like to share with our listeners that we, we want to make sure that they understand about, you know, getting started in the UK? Um, yeah, what's good about the UK or what's important? Um, no, I guess you just, you just need to give yourself a bit of time in terms of what you're trying to do. It's very competitive, the UK. It's a good, it's a good test. I mean, you know, America's hellishly competitive. So, you know, it might, might be less true for business from them, but you really have a lot of ideas here. So it could be quite a level up. I guess the only other thing is understanding that logistics here aren't a massive factor. If you're building a business and, you know, the reason you guys have Walmart and stuff is these sort of dominant players and that we have like, oh God, eight major uh, supermarket retailers who tear into each other all the time. It's because logistics isn't an issue here. You know, worst case scenario you, you know, if I needed to get something to the farthest reaches of Scotland, I could get in my car right now and I could drive it there tonight. So, you know, it's, it's uh, some, some countries, especially like America, where you're used to dealing with systems and logistics and understanding that, and that being a big factor. Here, you can slap a warehouse in the middle of England and you're done. That can supply the whole of the country you know, uh, there is no issue there. So therefore, the competition between companies is less system-based. It becomes, you know, the, the, the supermarkets compete with each other on price and on sort of ruthless with each other. But, you know, it's created this very interesting market. I think that that can be a factor, you know, if you're dealing in goods. Obviously, if you're not dealing in goods, then it's a slightly different question. I think also VAT, I would just, you've got to understand VAT. You know, GST is very different in America, and and if you get you you've got to get your head around how your VAT works, how your VAT is going to work across Europe as well. Um, that you know, understanding your tax is obviously an important thing, but VAT is quite complicated, and I wouldn't ignore it. I would I would make sure, especially if you're in technology and you're doing services or something like that, making sure that how you're supplying those services and you don't fall the wrong side of the VAT is quite important. Yeah, something like that. Are there that. any resources that you can recommend for our listeners to to just continue to become more educated? Obviously, we have a number of things on Globig, but um, what do you read? What do you? Where do you send people for more information? Um, I mean, obviously, we have our own sort of. Uh, we don't read case law stuff, but I, I hate to admit that. Yeah, the um, that the government's website, which is gov.uk, and is all all written with crystal clear English or whatever the standard is, is is very nice and easy to read. So, you know, it's a pretty good resource for generally trying to get a picture on on, on various aspects of law. Um, they've tried to give us sort of, you know, a helicopter and a bit more detail on it. Our own website, of course, you know, we do our best to try and give away a lot of information just to try and educate the client as much as we do quick guides we do a blog we do uh we make little videos on subjects you know that are tricky to understand um i mean you know the beating heart of the business world underneath it here is 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 the ft and the economist really you know you actually want to know what's going on here you know you've got to read the ft uh and obviously the economist is a british magazine originally and it, 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 it is excellent in that regard um you know yeah, I I think that's that's probably probably fair. There's 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 a lot of the other resource and help, of course, is um, there's an organisation we're part of called London and Partners, which is here to support you if you're setting up in London. And the other people who are brilliant is the UKTI, the United Kingdom Trade and Invest. Uh, I mean, it slightly depends on the person and everything, but they've got offices across America, they've got offices across the world. You know, they're, they're huge help. They, you know, we've worked with them for a long time. We've been very close partners with them there. They're a governmental organization, but if you get the right kind of person to help you, they will give you a lot of free support. They will give you, you can ask them for um, statistical information on your industry type or where to place your business in the UK. Um, you know, they'll introduce you to people like us. You know, I think I think the UKTI, although it's a, it's, it's sort of a big, ugly, a big, ugly, uh, 
organization in terms of its size, um, it generally wins the sort of, you know, the best, uh, um, I can't remember what they call them, they call them the sort of trade arms of the government. I mean, America is such a, a business culture intrinsically. You guys don't necessarily go to the government for help, nor, nor do Brits that much. I mean, it's the first thing you do when you're in Spain is ask the government what they're going to do for you. Uh, but the UKTI, I would definitely go and see them and you know see how they can help. Um, they can verify your business a bit too. They can see your operations. They can support you through bank accounts. And you want to get if you want to get visas too, they have influence over visas. So if they're really if they're really into what you're doing and they want to help you expand, they'll support internally any visa applications and say, no, 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 this is a really good business. That guy's a really good guy or girl. You know, help them get a help them get in. Excellent. Well, that's wonderful advice. And we'll make sure that we list all of those resources that you mentioned so that our listeners can continue to, you know, get deeper and deeper information. Andrew, thank you so very much for joining us today on the Go Global, Go Big podcast powered by Globig. And join us next time for another fantastic podcast on international expansion. This is Anka Corbin and hoping that you all go global and go big. 